If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Father in heaven again, as always, we are so grateful for the privilege we have to come and to gather and to open your word. Father, we ask that as we continue to go through our study in the book of Matthew, we pray, Lord, as we learn much more about the sending of your son Jesus into the world. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to see clearly how you orchestrated all things to work perfectly according to your plan. Now, Father, that as we read these uh, words and phrases that are found in this book, we'll see, Father, how everything has come together in a way that is, humanly speaking, mathematically impossible. Yet, Father, reveals to us clearly that this is your plan, this is your doing. And that, again, that those things that we believe are rooted in truth, that this is truth. So, Father, we continue to ask that you would bless our time in your word, and that, Lord, that we would learn those things, that we would be encouraged by those things that we see and learn. And so we do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till he had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Last week, as we went through the genealogy that Matthew presents, we see that what Matthew really is doing there in that genealogy is immediately bringing up a problem. And the problem that he's bringing up is, is that if Jesus is the son of Joseph, then Jesus is disqualified from ever sitting on the throne. That would then eliminate him from being the Messiah. That would mean he is not the one that they are looking for, that another must come. That would mean that everything else that we have about Jesus would have to in some way be false uh, because he is disqualified from the very, very beginning. So what some have called this is the Jeconiah problem. Because that is the reason why, if he was Joseph's son, he could not sit on a throne. Because even though he was related uh, to David, in that sense, through his stepfather, um, uh, Joseph, that because Jeconiah, or Coniah, depending on uh, which name you're familiar with, he goes by three of them, uh, that the Lord had pronounced a curse on Coniah, stating that no one from his lineage would ever, ever sit on the throne. And so because Joseph was of that lineage, sometimes you may hear people say, well, if Israel was uh, their own people and weren't ruled by Rome, that would mean Joseph would have been the king. Well, that's not what that means. Joseph would not have been the king because he was from the line that was cursed. 
So as I also mentioned last week, then Joseph, then Joseph, Matthew immediately solves the problem. That's why then the very next thing he gets into is the account of the virgin birth of Jesus. It's not because that's the natural starting point with Jesus, which would be to begin with his beginning, but he is solving the problem, uh, showing us that he is not Joseph's son uh, and that he is heir to the throne because of his unique conception and birth. So there are four references to the virgin conception of Jesus in the passage that we read. The first one is in verse 18, where again he says, Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So basically what he's pointing out is Mary was pregnant before she and Joseph had sexual relations. The second reference is in verse 20, where it says, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So he's reiterating the point that he made earlier in verse 18. Then when you go to verse 22, he says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And so again, he's reiterating the fact that this is a virgin birth. That solves this Jeconiah problem uh, right here from the get-go. And then the fourth reference is then in verse 25, where it says, And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn. Now there's an interesting observation about the way... This verse is worded in verse 25, where it says, did not know her till, uh, in, and that's the New King James. In the New American Standard, it says, uh, basically saying that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. In the English Standard Version, it says, but knew her not until she gave birth. And in the um, Christian Standard Version, it says, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth. So the word till or the word until, points out that they, Mary and Joseph, did have sexual relations after the birth of Jesus. So that falsifies the claim that Mary remained a virgin, because there are those, primarily Catholic, who teach in the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. And that is just simply not true. That is not what the text is telling us. And it's clearly telling us that there was a point when she did have sexual relations, but that was after the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so once again, it goes back to the Reformation, uh, where one of the main questions is, uh, when there is a conflict or contradiction between uh, the church or the church's interpretation or the church's teaching of Scripture and the Scripture itself, what do you go with? Well, as Baptists, we always go with the Scripture. We go, what does the Word of God say? And here again, I believe that it makes that clear and resolves that problem for us. And so if you ever get into a discussion with anyone about that, uh, you then can simply take them to that passage, uh, have them read it, ask them to explain to you what that verse means, because it's not hard, uh, and then have them defend their belief or their church's belief um, in uh, the virgin birth. What some people have said to me uh, when I've talked to them about that, they say, well, you know, I don't believe everything my church teaches. And so then I ask, then why do you go there? You know, if that's false, what else is false? Uh, and of course, the goal is to lead to the fact that uh, even though they have that wrong, they have the gospel itself wrong, and that's, that's an important thing. In Matthew 13, chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, again, it reads this way. It says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? And so then uh, not, that also mitigates against uh, Mary remaining a virgin because she had at least six other children. Uh, we don't know how many sisters there were, but since the word sisters is plural, that means there's at least two. So we've got six siblings of Jesus that are mentioned here 
uh, in this passage. And so that also, uh, you know, is, is evidence against this idea that Mary remained a virgin. John MacArthur says this about the importance of the virgin birth. He says this, The virgin birth is the only way to explain how the Messiah could be both God and man. If Jesus had a human father, he was just a man. And if he was just a man, he could not be the Savior. And if Jesus is not the Savior, there is no gospel, no salvation, no resurrection, no hope beyond this life. So it does more than just resolve the issue as to whether or not Jesus was qualified to be both the Messiah and to be the King of Israel, to be able to sit on the throne. It does resolve that, but it goes beyond that. It is a uh, foundational doctrine that we must believe in. Uh, like other foundational issues, people then ask the question, so do you have to believe in the virgin birth to be saved? And so my answer to that is yes and no. An individual may hear the gospel, not really understand the whole idea of the virgin birth, and believe in Christ as their Savior. And if you were to ask them, do you believe in the virgin birth, might even say no. But as they learn that that is clearly what the scripture teaches, then they will believe in it. Now, if they are then clearly taught what the Word of God says on that, and they, it's okay to have their doubts and have their questions, and when those, those are being answered or have been answered, and they then refuse to believe in the virgin birth, now I think we have a problem. And that person may not be a believer. So it's one of those things that, yes, you must believe that, uh, but it's not a requirement to become saved, but I do believe it's a requirement to believe when you are saved. And so that may take place a few minutes after your conversion, that may take a couple of years after your conversion, because there are those who it may not have been taught to them, it may not have been taught properly to them, or they may have been wrongly told that it's unimportant. And so they might be thinking that it was not that big of a deal. And so we need to make sure we're able to explain to them that it is a big deal. Arnold Frutenbaum adds that if there was no virgin birth, then the promises of the Old Testament would be lies beginning with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which we're going to get into later, and then in also in the book of Isaiah chapter 7. So turn to Isaiah 7. Uh, many of the Jewish sages consider Isaiah 7 to be a messianic passage, uh, which would require a virgin birth. It doesn't mean that all Jews believe that, especially back then. Uh, there are a lot of different views. In fact, Arnold Frutenbaum will tell you uh, that when it comes to understanding any, let's say, questionable issue, if you have three Jews discussing it, you're going to have four different opinions. Uh, and so, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they're going to have the right view of it. But Isaiah 7 uh, is a very important passage. It's quoted here uh, by Matthew. And so we need to take a look and make sure we understand it. Beginning in verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you will weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to, ref that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the, days, since the day the Ephraim departed from Judah. So in verses 10 through 12, Isaiah is speaking only to Ahaz. 
Then when you get to verses 13 and 14, Isaiah is speaking to the house of David. Um, all of their personal pronouns are, uh, are plural, not singular. And so the sign that he speaks of in verses 13 and 14 is not the sign to Ahaz. We'll get to what that is in a moment. Uh, so it's not to Ahaz as an individual, but it's to the house of David. So look again at verses 13 and 14. And when you look at the Hebrew language and see that the word you is in the plural, it would then read this way. Then he said, hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for, and I guess if they're from Georgia, y'all to weary men? So basically it's for you all to weary men, but will you all weary my God also? Therefore the Lord will give you all a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So basically, verses 13 and 14 is speaking to the house of David. That's to, to the nation of Israel, who he's speaking to. And he says he's going to give them a sign. And the sign is uh, a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. In verses 15 and 17, then, the pronouns switch back to the singular. So verses 15, beginning in verse 15, it reads this way. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, for, behold, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you, and that's now in the singular, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you, again it's singular, and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So in verse 16, when he says, before the child shall know, the child here is a specific individual. And before this child is old enough to make moral choices, the two kings that Ahaz fears uh, about are going to be off the scene. So he doesn't have to worry about them. So who is this child? Well, it cannot be a newly born child because the word na'ar is used, meaning one who has been born and has existed for a while. So when you look at the immediate context, there is a child that is mentioned, which is back in verse 3 of chapter 7, uh, which is the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, uh, your son, at the end of the aqueduct uh, from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. So Shear Jashub uh, will be the sign to Ahaz. That's the sign to Ahaz. Verse 14, where he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin's son is going to be a sign to the house of David. So how do we know that virgin is correct because that's what Isaiah that's what uh, Matthew quotes in Matthew when you read it it uses the word virgin we have the word virgin used here in Isaiah 7 if you go to or if you were to attend a what we would call a liberal church if they were teaching on Isaiah 7 most likely not always but most likely what they would tell you is the word that's used here in Isaiah 7 does not necessarily mean virgin it just means a young maiden and the reason why that argument is made by some, and maybe by many, is they want to downplay or diminish this idea that you have to believe in the virgin birth. What they're going to say is, well, that's not what's being emphasized. It's not necessarily a virgin. Uh, and there's different reasons why they want to go there. But what's important is this. The word behold that you have there, it says behold the virgin, uh, that is called, and I got this from a book because I don't, I don't know the Hebrew language, but that's called a demonstrative article. And so it is used with the Hebrew active participle, or when it's used with the active uh, 
participle. It is always future. So it's basically shall conceive. Shall conceive is an active participle. And so some have tried to argue that in this verse, verse 14, that Isaiah is referring to someone who's already pregnant and that the future aspect of the language was only speaking of the birth. But this verse, this verse, verse 14, is not just speaking only of the birth, but it's also speaking of the very conception. Uh, again, behold, the virgin shall conceive. So the whole thing is being viewed in the future. So this is not, verse 14 is not speaking of or about a woman who's already there somewhere in the court who's already pregnant. Because again, there are several different commentaries on this, and some of them, again, may have a liberal slant, and you're going to come across uh, those kinds of arguments or statements. The next thing that is dealt with uh, by them or denied by many is, again, that this is necessarily speaking of a virgin. And again, the goal is to downplay the idea that a believer needs to speak in the virgin birth. Uh, Oftentimes what happens is um, when individuals are gathered together calling themselves Christians, and some of them may be, uh, they say that when it comes to these different denominations, uh, we need to agree on those things that we agree on. And normally that, whatever list that is, it continues to shrink. Uh, What we would call the fundamentals of the faith are important. And one of the fundamentals of the faith is that Jesus is God. And there are those who want to downplay that. We believe that uh, Jesus lived a perfect life, lived in obedience. Uh, You know, all those major aspects of the gospel, we would say, are the common things that all believers believe. But also one of the fundamentals of the faith would be the virgin birth. Uh, that is what, that's, that's the linchpin. That's what everything is built on or based on is, is Jesus being born of a virgin. That's how all these things are possible. So then when someone wants to downplay or diminish or maybe eliminate the idea of the virgin birth, that's a very important thing for us to pay attention to. Is what they are saying, does it hold any weight? Is what they're saying true? In the Hebrew language, there are three words that could be used uh, for virgin. Alma which is used here, that's A-L-M-A. Then there's the word uh, uh, na'ara and the word bethula. So when it comes to na'ara, that is a Hebrew word that can refer to a virgin or to a non-virgin. It's nondescript. And again, that's not the word that's used. Uh, The next word that could have been used, which was not used, was bethula. In modern Hebrew, that word is used uh, for virgin. But in classical Hebrew, it is a word that is used to refer to a single girl without regard to age. So no matter what the age is, that word could be used. In most cases in classical Hebrew, it is used of a virgin. However, the word itself is not always clearly a virgin. And what's important here, I believe, is that the word that is used, the idea is to make sure that it's clear. You know, we don't want a word that's being used, or I don't think God wants a word that's used, that, it, well, it could be argued that, it, that again, it's not necessarily a virgin. So we have the word Alma, which is the word that is used. This, the basic meaning of this word is a young virgin. It never refers to someone who is old, and it is never used of a married woman. So there's a couple of things to consider. And uh, again, what I'm, I'm going to read to you out of uh, a couple of things that come from uh, some books dealing with uh, words and Hebrew words and, and this, in this particular passage It says the root Alm, A-L-M, which is the root of Alma, A-L-M-A, which is the word that's used here in Isaiah, in every related language. All right, so you know languages uh, belong to different groups. And so Hebrew, Aramaic are are related to uh, Babylonian, to the language that the Canaanites spoke, to Phoenician, to Arabic, to Assyrian. That's all in the same family of languages. 
So the root, A-L-M, in all of those languages always means virgin. Nothing else. It means virgin. So if someone wants to say that the Hebrew word Alma does not mean virgin, then they would probably have to prove that out of all of the Semitic languages, Hebrew is the only exception to the rule. That in all those other Semitic languages, this would mean virgin, but somehow, some reason for, for Hebrew, it doesn't mean that. And they would have to be able to explain that linguistically, to say this is not, this is not virgin, uh, virgin and this is why. And th- that cannot be done because it means the same thing. In the Septuagint, again, when we speak of the Septuagint, sometimes if you're reading a book uh, and they're talking about the Old Testament, uh, they may use the word Septuagint or sometimes they use an abbreviation, which, which is Roman numerals, LXX. And what that's referring to is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, and so you had... Uh, 70 Jewish or Hebrew scholars, uh, and they translated the Old Testament into Greek uh, because their concern was that their people were not um, reading the language, and, and they, many of them didn't know Hebrew, and they wanted to have the scriptures uh, in their language, and so they translated it into, uh, into Greek. And so when they did that, the Jewish translation of the Septuagint, which took place around 200 B.C., uh, Alam was translated Parthenos, And that is a word that always refers to an unmarried woman. Uh, Some say it is a word that is used strictly for a virgin and never for a married woman. So back in relation then to Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, the Greek word then is at least an unmarried woman and that much is clear. So that then leaves us with a couple of options. And the options would be this, because remember this is a sign. This is a sign that's given to the house of Israel. So either you do have a virgin birth or you have an illegitimate birth. That's the two options you're left with. So if you ask yourself, who, would it, who is it that's performing this miracle? Of course, that's God. God is performing the miracle. Uh, and an illegitimate birth is not much of a miracle. And since this is something that God is doing, it would seem odd for God to be using an illegitimate birth um, to prove his point. In fact, I know that uh, there was some ad campaign that came out um, several years ago. I don't know how many. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if people were trying to be cute. Um, I think they were trying to make some kind of a social point, and that is they were saying that the, the ads were basically that Jesus was an illegitimate child, uh, and the idea was, I guess, to support single mothers. Well, there's a lot of ways to support single mothers, but to say that Jesus was an illegitimate child is not the way to do that because that would be inaccurate because he was not illegitimate. He did have a father. His mother was unmarried, but once again... We have the miracle of the virgin conception and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So since this is supposed to be a sign from God to the house of David or for the house of David, meaning that the house of David, first of all, can't be eliminated until this thing takes place, it doesn't mean that the house of David will be eliminated, but that the promise here is for her comfort, regardless of what takes place in history. So that no matter what takes place in history, Israel is going to understand that there's going to be this sign that's going to be given to it from God. And there were some Jews who did, who were alive when Jesus was born, who believed that very thing. Uh, there was the, the, the old man that we'll read about later uh, that was waiting in the temple. Uh, he was very old and the Lord had told him that he would not die until we saw the promised one. And well, why was he, what, what promised one was he waiting for? Well, he, he believed what Isaiah chapter 7 said. He believed what Genesis 3 said. And, and he was awaiting for the coming of the Messiah. And I, I believe that he believed that it would be a virgin birth. 
it would be a, a miraculous kind of uh, uh, instance that would take place. And, of course, the Lord allowed him to see uh, his son before he passed on. So, again, uh, when it comes to this, another thing to take note is that in this passage in Isaiah 7, it again reads, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So we have the definite article, the virgin. So the rules concerning the use of a definite article and who it's referring to, again, um, are as follows. And I got this from uh, Arnold's book where he deals with this passage and with the Hebrew language. And he says this, number one, the first rule of a definite article that's used when it speaks of, in this case, the virgin. It is a woman already mentioned in the immediate context. But there has been no woman that's been mentioned in the immediate context. So then the second uh, rule is what's called the law of previous mention. And that is this. When some person or some event has become prominent in the minds of the people, when you say the, everyone knows what you're talking about. So the example that he gives would be the Exodus. So if we're talking and I say, well, let's talk about the Exodus. The first thing everybody thinks of is the exodus that we have back in the Old Testament when Moses led the children of Israel out of Israel. You can use the word exodus for a lot of things. But whenever we speak of the exodus, that's what we think about because that's a prominent event. So here, in this case, uh, as we're looking at Isaiah chapter 7, then who would people be thinking of? Who is this woman that they would have in mind who was a virgin? And so what Arnold says, and I believe that he's right in this, and when you look at the writings, some old writings of uh, what we would call Jewish believers, um, those who uh, have some things in writing uh, before the coming of Jesus, they would all refer to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So let me read that to you. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so what many of the uh, ancient writers recognized is the way that this verse is written. Because it's unusual. Why would he say, and her seed? That's not the normal way of putting things, uh, especially in a Jewish context. They don't write like that. Uh, and so this being written this way purposely is talking about something specific, which again, we know what is Jesus. He's the seed of the woman. We know that it's Mary's genealogy that we have in Luke that shows us uh, that he has a right to sit on the throne of David. It is Mary's line that shows us he's from the tribe of Judah. That's the line uh, that's being used. And the reason why that's used is because of his unusual birth. It's a virgin birth. He was conceived by uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as a result of that, that's what all this is referring to. So again, Isaiah is simply explaining that passage. The Messiah is the seed of the woman, which again goes contrary to the biblical norm. And this is what uh, Arnold says. He says, um, this goes contrary to the biblical norm since in Scripture the seed is always traced after the male line. The genealogies throughout the Bible always give the male line. However, for the Messiah, this will be different. Moses does not explain why it's going to be different and why the Messiah will be reckoned after the seed of the woman. That is explained here in Isaiah. The seed of the woman implies a supernatural conception. The Messiah will have no human father, so his lineage can only be traced through his mother, or through the mother. So again, what all of this is emphasizing is this, is you cannot diminish the virgin birth, because if you do that, you have to change the scripture. In fact, I believe that 
the word that Isaiah used is the strongest word you can use to make sure that there was no misunderstanding that Jesus Christ, that this conception of birth is going to be from a virgin. And so this miraculous event that took place uh, is what then Matthew is speaking about and then is foundational to everything else he's going to say in his gospel. Remember that he is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot in there for us to glean from because there is. But his, uh, his initial purpose, not his sole purpose, but his initial purpose and his main purpose was to prove to the people of Israel that Jesus is the Messiah. And that is a major deal. For them, the problem of Jeconiah and the line of Joseph is a deal breaker. And that has to be resolved. And so what does Matthew do? Matthew then not only answers that by speaking of the virgin birth, he then goes back to the Old Testament, what they know, the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, to show them that this is the fulfillment of that. This is what God promised. And for many of them, those who were awaiting for the Messiah, those who were faithful, immediately grasped and grabbed what he was talking about and would have not only understood it, but then would have believed it. Um, and, and because, again, to them, it's a major thing. The significance, then, of the name of Jesus, which says that he shall be called Emmanuel, the name here that's mentioned in, Matthew, in Isaiah 7, the uh, name is not the proper name. It doesn't mean that he's going to be called that as far as his identity. It's actually used as a description of the person, or it's a word that's used as uh, to describe the character of the one who's being spoken about. So we know that throughout the Bible, oftentimes when a parent names a child, it shows us the thinking of the parents um, and helps us also to see what's important to them. As to the name and, and to maybe its meaning, in, in America, we're a little different in that way. A lot of people don't really get, get deep into what a name means. Sometimes people do, but for many, it's just, you know, well, my dad's name was John, so we're going to call him John because I like my dad. Or, you know, I like such and such a name because it's a cool name. Or, I like this name because I like that person, or whatever it happens to be. And we really don't get into what the name means. Uh, but um, back during the time of Jesus and, the, and before then, most definitely in many different uh, cultures, the, the name you give to your child was very important and it was significant uh, for good or for bad. And so here it's the same way. Um, Again, when it comes to this, when God names a person, uh, I believe it's more than just what happens when a human parent names their person. When God names a person, it shows or reveals the character of the one who's named. And so God says that he will be called Emmanuel. So that means the character of the child is, is with us God. That is how it would literally read, with us God. Or as we have read in the passage today, God is with us. And we know that when Jesus came, he came to do what? To reveal to us the Father. We also know this, that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. He is God with us. He came to dwell among us, to live with us, to reveal to us the Father. And that is his character. That is what he's all about. And that's what he did. And that's, once again, exactly what this is talking about here in this passage. So those who deny the virgin birth also sometimes will say this, that, well, but that's just biologically impossible. And they're right. Of course it's biologically impossible. It's also biologically impossible to create Adam from dirt. You know, I know that, that we've heard about scientists trying to create a test tube baby. I have not yet heard anyone saying, we've got a greenhouse, we've got some dirt, we're going to make a human. I don't have, no one's ever tried that, at least not one that I've heard of, uh, is trying to do that. So that's biologically impossible. God did that too. 
So what we know as Christians is biological impossibilities mean nothing to God because God transcends the natural world. Some claim that Jewish Christians invented the virgin birth. But why would they invent a virgin birth when they weren't expecting one because most of them had misunderstood Isaiah 7? When Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, he's helping them to put all these things together. Remember, there are, there are quite a few different views about who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would be like. What most of them were looking for was someone to come to deliver them from Rome. What many of the Pharisees were looking for was their belief was that the Messiah would be a Pharisee. And this whole idea of a virgin birth, nobody was thinking in that way. No one of any prominence was thinking in that way. I do believe there are those who, that once they grasped, again, what Matthew was saying, they immediately clutched onto this. They immediately embraced this idea and knew that this was true. But again, from its inception, from the very beginning, the church of Jesus Christ has always believed in the virgin birth. That has been foundational to the church, as we know it, going all the way back to the book of Acts. That's always been there, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is man, all the things that we believe about the gospel. It's been foundational with the church from the very beginning. This was not added on later. This was not something that somebody made up. Um, in fact, if you were going to create a religion, uh, most people would say that if I'm going to create a religion, I wouldn't create a virgin birth because that's way too hard to believe in. You know, we want to make it much more palatable to people. So this kind of goes against the natural uh, tendency that people are going to have. Uh, Arist- uh, Aristides uh, was a post-apostolic writer, and he said this of Jesus. He said, he is himself, son of God on high who was manifested of the Holy Spirit, came down from heaven, and being born of a Hebrew virgin, took on his flesh from the virgin. He it is who was, according to the flesh, born of the race of the Hebrews, by the God-fearing virgin Murray, uh, Mary. So, Murray, <laughs> that would really be weird. Uh, the God-fearing virgin Mary. So, early Christians, again, have believed in the virgin birth. Jesus Christ, again, is Christianity. Apart from him, we have no faith, no salvation, and no hope. And when I read to you earlier from John MacArthur, no one who is truly Christian can deny that. From the very inception of Christianity, Satan has attempted to destroy the Christian church. He has questioned the deity of Christ. He has discounted his sacrifice. Religions, cults, false teachers rally to Satan's aid. As Christians, we should expect attacks on the person of Christ from those that are outside our ranks. But again, a much more subtle and dangerous attack has arisen, which manifests itself not in blasphemous insults, but in casual neglect. A Christianity that is not saturated with Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end is unorthodox. And so on many fronts, the reason why those who deny the virgin birth have made such inroads into the church is because the, the church as a whole especially again when I say that I'm normally speaking of the church in America, has tended to neglect certain things, sometimes out of fear. We don't want to push too much the virgin birth because that would turn off or turn away those who are more academic, that would turn away those who are, you know, really, really smart. As we say in Hawaii, those who are real akamai, they're not going to grab onto that. So the church has tended to neglect some of those kinds of things. We're not trying to declare our ignorance about anything When we declare that we believe firmly in the virgin birth, we're simply declaring that we have faith in what God has revealed to us. And what God has revealed to us is his son was conceived and born of a virgin. 
There's no way for us to get around that. And if you have a friend, someone that you love, who claims to be a Christian and says they have some real serious doubts about the virgin birth, pray and ask God for wisdom and ask them if you and them can sit down one day and have an in-depth discussion about the importance of that because you believe that if a person does not believe in a virgin birth, they cannot remain or be a Christian. And they may not really grasp what you're saying then, but you want to talk to them about that. That's important because they may be shying away from it for many reasons. Uh, And those who will shy away from foundational doctrines like that just because they're afraid of what maybe some people may think about them, what's going to happen to the church when a real persecution shows up? When when, when, our jobs are at stake? When there's a very real chance that we'll go to jail or prison? Even though we talk about that, and that being a possibility, most of us, I believe, even if we say that's going to happen one day, we don't think we're going to see it. I mean, we really don't, but we do have to be prepared for it because it can change very rapidly. It does not take long for it to change. There are many things that are happening in our culture that we thought would not happen. And I'm not just just talking about just certain kinds of immorality, but certain positions, certain things that are going on religiously or about Christianity or, or in the church and you know, how the, the dynamic between Christianity and our culture and how all of that works. There are many things that are taking place that, we, that many people thought they would never see. And, and when changes begin to take place, normally it begins to pick up speed when that happens. And so it's not to scare anybody, it's just a reality. Again, it's nothing different than what Jesus has already told us when he said, don't be surprised. Why? Because they hated him first. So I do believe this, that any rejection of Christ's supernatural origin leaves his supernatural life and his supernatural death and his supernatural resurrection inexplicable. You've got to have all of it. Uh, because if you don't have all of it, none of it makes sense. You just can't have some of it. It has to be at all. So if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then the claim that he can save is highly questionable. So we will end there. And again, my challenge to you is, again, as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, do I really believe that the conception of Jesus and his birth was of a virgin? Do I truly believe that? To the point that I can say, I know that's true. I trust and hope that you can, that you can with great confidence, say that. Though many others will deny it, we must believe that. And I believe that God will reward those who have faith in him. Again, our faith, there's substance to our faith. The evidence, I believe, is there. But it is not based only on evidence. We still must take God at his word. And he's proven himself to be trustworthy, proven himself to never be a liar. And we can take this and we can build our faith on the truth of what the word of God says. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful to you, Lord, for your goodness and for the clarity of your word. We thank you, Father, that over and over again. In fact, we saw four times uh, Matthew went out of his way to make sure that he reiterated the virgin birth or the supernatural birth of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that because, Father, we know that uh, our salvation to be achieved had to take place with the death uh, of Jesus, a supernatural death that did result in a supernatural resurrection of Jesus. And, Father, we are so grateful for that. In fact, Father, our salvation, our hope resides in the fact that a supernatural event surrounded Jesus in all that he did and said. And we are grateful. I pray, Father, for any here tonight who may be wavering in their faith 
over these things, I pray that they would be encouraged and they would be strengthened. I pray, Lord, that when they think about the birth of Jesus Christ, that there would be a sense deep within them that we can, we can stand firm on this because the scripture clearly declares this and teaches this. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage and reward each one who clings to the truth of your word. Father, we do pray for those who may be in doubt, whether it's anyone here tonight or others that we know. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us wisdom, give to us courage, give to us the knowledge that we need to speak with them, maybe just to challenge them, Father, uh, to do the study themselves, to see if these claims that are made about Jesus are true or not. Because, Father, we know that uh, for the one who wants to make an honest inquiry, you have no fear, and we should have no fear of what they will discover because they will discover the truth that, yes, indeed, indeed, Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin. Father, we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.